Good morning. Um, Pray with me if you would. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and kindness to us. Um, We pray that the words from the hymn we sang this morning, O come thou wisdom from on high, and order all things far and nigh, to us the path of knowledge show, and cause us in her ways to go. Father, we pray that your word, your wisdom, and your knowledge um, would change our lives and would change our hearts and teach us in the right ways to walk. Amen. Um, Our scripture reading this morning is from John chapter 3, verses 22 through 30. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside, where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because there was plenty of water, and people were constantly coming to be baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, well, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. To this, John replied, a man can receive only what is given him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Christ, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it is now complete. Excuse me, it is now complete. He must become greater, I must become less. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Jamie. Well, this is, uh, this is week two of Advent. I say this every week. I'm going to say it today. I'm going to say it every week of Advent, and you're going to be sick of hearing me say it. Advent is not Christmas. Advent is a season leading up to Christmas, and it's a season of longing and expectation. It's important because culturally, we start celebrating Christmas early. Uh, Home Depot and Walmart want you to start celebrating Christmas as soon as possible. And, um, and in fact, like even before Halloween, they would love to sell you one of those, you know, those obnoxious inflatable yard Santas. Um, and maybe some of you have those. I remember being in a Lowe's, gosh, this is probably 10 years ago. And in August, Lowe's had started selling Christmas lights and Christmas decorations. Um, I don't know why exactly that is, but we tend to celebrate kind of early and we, and we get in the Christmas spirit and there's no, by the way, it's like, it's okay to get Christmas cheer. I'm not saying that's not okay, but we tend to Christmas cheer and get in the Christmas spirit early, earlier and earlier. And there's a buildup and a buildup and a buildup. And then the celebration climaxes on Christmas day on December 25th. And then on to December 26th, we move, we just move on and forget about it. And, and you might leave your tree up or whatever, but, but something in the air changes on December 26th. It's like, okay, we've done that, and it's time to move on. Advent is important because it's, it builds a, a sense of expectation and of longing in us that makes the celebration that much sweeter. It's like, um, I started, I don't know why, but I started thinking this week about Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Remember with uh, Gene Wilder, the old, the old one with Gene Wilder in it? It's like the more you long for something, the sweeter it becomes. So Charlie, 
uh, is in a very, very poor family, and his birthday is coming up, and it, they're so poor that his dad can, he has to scrounge together a year's worth of savings just about to buy his son a chocolate bar for Christmas. But when he gives his son that chocolate bar, like you know he's going to savor it because there's been a longing and an expectation. They have not realized that thing. Compare that to, remember Augustus Gloop? He's the guy who gets sucked up the tube at the end of the movie. This, if you don't remember, Augustus Gloop is the just exceptionally obese boy who does nothing but eat Wonka chocolate bars. And, and so every chocolate bar is meaningless to him because he just eats and eats and eats and eats and eats and eats. And it actually costs him in the end. The more we can, the more we can discipline ourselves to long for something, to almost put off the gratification, the sweeter the payoff becomes in the end, so to speak. That's one of the values of intentionally celebrating and observing Advent and not moving too quickly to Christmas. And this year during Advent, we're learning from John the Baptist. Uh, John the Baptist, although most of what we know about John the Baptist comes when he's an adult, and he and Jesus are cousins, so they're both adults, you might think, wait a minute, aren't we talking about baby Jesus, and now we're talking about this man 30 years later. Uh, And yet, John the Baptist's mission, as he puts it, is to prepare the way of the Lord. He is a very striking Advent character. In more traditional, kind of high church liturgical settings, um, every single year, they spend two Sundays focusing on John the Baptist during Advent for exactly this reason. That John was single-minded, he, I mean, he just had blinders on in his mission, which was very, very simple, which is to point people to Jesus, to make much of Jesus, to shine the spotlight on Jesus. John knew that it's like in any, in any good theater production, the spotlight can only be on one person. There's not room for two, and that in some, in some sense, honor, John understand, is a, is a zero-sum game. So if, if he wanted any, any honor that John wanted for himself would have taken away from the honor people give to Jesus. And that's why when we come to this very famous line that he says at the end of the reading today, he must become greater, I must become less. Or the more traditional, if you learn this version in the King James, he must increase, I must decrease. John had one mission in life. He didn't care what it cost him. He was a pretty weird, odd character. We'll look more at that um, in the next couple weeks. But just, just in the gospel of John alone, listen to these descriptions of John the Baptist. This is John chapter 1, verse 8. It says, John was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. John chapter 1, verse 20. John did not fail to confess, but confessed freely. I'm not the Christ. John chapter 1, verse 36, when John saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, look, the Lamb of God, there he is. And then two from today's reading, you yourselves, this is the words of John, you can testify that I said, I'm not the Christ, I'm sent ahead of him. And finally, again, in John 3.30, he must become greater, I must become less. He must increase, I must decrease. John understood that the spotlight can only shine on one person. And in fact, John saw this. I'm borrowing this language from Fleming Rutledge. She's a a priest, an Episcopal priest, and a theologian. Uh, She points out John the Baptist existed not to be in the spotlight, but to be a spotlight. So in any good theater production, right, the, the spotlight shines on the main character, but you don't actually notice the spotlight. 
You don't see it. You don't notice it. It's, it's way in the back. Your attention, hopefully, is up front on the stage. The spotlight exists for one purpose, which is to illuminate the main character, to focus everybody. And wherever the spotlight goes, that's where your attention goes. In a theater, it's dark, and so the spotlight really focuses your attention. The spotlight does not exist to draw attention to itself. In fact, a spotlight actually can't shine light on itself. It doesn't work that way. John says, I'm not here to be in the spotlight. I'm here to be the spotlight itself, shining on the main character, directing everybody's attention to the main character. Now, they didn't have spotlights in ancient cultures, but John uses an image that they did have and that we still have today, which is the image of a wedding. Here's how, here's how he puts it. This is John chapter 3, verse 29. He says, the bride belongs to the bridegroom, and the friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. You might be thinking, what's with the wedding language? What does that mean? Here's what he's saying. The bride belongs to the bridegroom and by implication, we know this, the bride does not belong to the best man. The bride belongs to the groom, not to the best man. And every time in the old, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament, when you see the church that's ta- or the, the bride that's talking about God's people, that would be Israel, that would be the church, Jesus or God is always the groom in that language. And John is saying, I'm the best man. Like at a wedding, nobody focuses on the best man. Nobody. At a wedding nowadays, nobody focuses on the groom either. Everybody only focuses on the bride. <laughs> In ancient cultures, it was a little bit different, but you get, like, you get the idea. The best man is there for one reason, which is just to serve the groom, just to make things go smoothly so that the groom doesn't have to do anything or think about anything except his bride. The best man is not there to take the spotlight, to steal the spotlight from the groom. Now, we can translate that into today's bride-centric culture just as well. The maid of honor is not there to steal the attention from the bride. She is there really to stand in the background and to serve the bride so that the spotlight falls fully on the bride. If the maid of honor were to steal the spotlight, to bring and draw the attention to herself, she would dishonor the bride. It would make for a great movie plot and a really terrible actual experience. We know this. We get this conceptually. I know this from experience. uh, I was thinking about wedding language and thinking over weddings this week, I've actually served as a best man in two weddings. And in both the weddings that I, where I've served as the best man, the maid of honor has done an exceptional job. And I realized one of the reasons I know that both of those maids of honor did an exceptional job is because in both weddings where I've served as the best man, I don't know who the maid of honor even was. Like one of them was my brother's wedding. I don't even know who my, my sister-in-law's maid of honor was. I couldn't name her. I, couldn't, I don't remember what she looked like. And you might think, well, that seems kind of cruel. Or No, that actually means that she did a great... That means she put the spotlight directly on the bride, exactly where it should be. Exactly where it should be. The maid of honor is there to get out of the way and to make the bride look good. The best man is there to get out of the way and make the groom look good. John says, I'm here to get out of the way and make Jesus, the true bridegroom, look good. He must become greater. I must become less. He must increase. I must decrease. 
Now you might be meaning, wondering, what, is this, what does this mean for Advent? In the season where we're waiting and longing for Jesus to come again and to make all things new and complete his work, what does this mean for Advent? To answer that, let me uh, direct you to the beginning again of John's gospel. Now, there, there are a couple Johns here, so I, let's just be, make sure we're not confusing. There's John, the gospel writer. That's the John who followed Jesus and wrote the book of John in the New Testament. John, the gospel writer. We'll call him John G. And then there's John the Baptist. That's John B. There's two Johns going on. So, just so we don't get them mixed up, John G. writes this. He starts his uh, gospel, his account of Jesus' life, by talking about Jesus. Here's what he says about Jesus. He says, in Jesus was life, and that life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, immediately after that, he changes gears and moves the spotlight, and he starts talking about John the Baptist, John B. Here's what he says, the very next verse. He says, there came a man who was sent from God. His name was John, and he came as a witness to testify concerning the light so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. And the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Believe it or not, these are Advent verses. These are Advent verses. We see three realities baked into these verses that I want to point your attention to quickly. The first is this, that there is still darkness in the world. That very famous line, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Uh, okay, yes, there's light, and that's good news, but there is still darkness. There is darkness, and we recognize and we name that there is still darkness in the world. That's the first reality. The second, darkness does not rule over the world. So if the first reality is there is darkness in the world, the second reality is but darkness does not rule over the world. It is present, but it is not in control. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I use some version of this illustration that I'm about to use every single time I preach or talk about or teach about this text. It's just too good. Have you ever been in a dark or like a completely dark room, and you go to light a candle, and you light the candle, and then all of a sudden, like, there's no light coming from the candle. The darkness just swallows up the flame. Has that ever happened to you? No, of course not. It, it can't happen. Every time you're in a dark room and you light a candle, or every time you're in a dark room and you flip the switch to turn on the lights and the light turns on, you know what happens? The light overcomes the darkness. Every single time, light always overcomes darkness. Always. It's actually a rule of physics. You, you will never see the day. I promise you. I guarantee you this. You will never see the day that you're in a dark room and you go to light a candle and somehow the darkness just like swallows up the light and no light comes out of that candle. Light always overcomes darkness. Always. It's, it's, just, it's a rule. It's just the way it works. It's the nature of light. The first reality, yes, there is darkness in the world, but the second is more important, that the darkness does not control the light because the light always overcomes the darkness. Always. 
The third reality is that we often need someone to point us to the light. We often need someone to help us notice the light, to remind us to look for the light, because sometimes it's a dim light. We don't have an easy time seeing it. We actually don't need help, most of us, recognizing and noticing the darkness in the world. You don't need help seeing all the ways the world is broken, do you? Like all you have to do is turn on the news or open the paper or scroll through your feed. Like it's pretty obvious. And this isn't just stuff that's out there. I mean, it is. And and there's darkness there. And when we read news from China and from Ukraine, and there's darkness. But there, we also see it in, in just every day in our own lives. You see it in that strained relationship with that person that you used to be so close with. You see it in your family because one of you is red and one of you is blue, and you just have not figured out how to get past that. Or you just notice it every time you notice the grief that surrounds the empty chair around the table. We don't, need, we don't need help noticing the darkness of this world. And the more we see it and the more we notice and the more we feel, it can start to feel like the darkness is in control. And even in those moments, we'll sometimes we'll at least pay lip service to the, to the power of light. And yeah, light has overcome the darkness, but the light seems so dim or so far off that, that at best it can seem like a platitude. We don't need help noticing the darkness in the world. We need help noticing and remembering the light in the world. And we need to be reminded that it's there and reminded to look for it and to pay attention to it and to cultivate it. When we see the darkness in the world, our thoughts tend to turn inward. Oh, there's so much darkness. How will this affect me? Woe is me. Why is this happening to me? But when we're directed to the light of the world, then our thoughts start to turn outward. And we can say, along with John the Baptist, he must increase. He must increase. I must decrease. See, Advent is a season where we acknowledge the darkness. We name it. And that's important, to name it and to recognize it. But we don't stop there. We name the darkness and we name the light. And we insist that he must increase. He must increase. I must decrease. The light must increase because darkness has not overcome the light. You see? There was one time in history, by the way, when darkness did overcome light. It's happened once. We read about it in uh, Luke's gospel. I think it's Luke 22. He tells us that the moment that Jesus died, which was right about 12, sometime between 12 and 3, p.m., according to Luke. He says the earth went dark from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, which we know now is between 12 and 3 p.m. Luke's exact words are this. He says the sun stopped shining. And in that moment, the darkness had literally snuffed out the light. But on the third day, very early in the morning, while it was still dark out, a handful of Jesus' followers, all women, by the way, a handful of Jesus' followers went to Jesus' tomb to anoint his corpse with spices, and they found that the tomb was empty. 
And as the sun rose over the horizon and broke the darkness of that night, they realized that the sun had risen and broken the darkness of this world. You see, even in those moments where where darkness does snuff out light, the light always overcomes the darkness, always. We sing about this when we sing one of my favorite hymns in Christ Alone. The third verse, it goes like this. It says, There in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain. And then the second line, which I can can never actually sing because I get choked up every time, but bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. For I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. No matter the darkness of the world, no matter the darkness of the world, he must increase, you see. We must decrease, and he will increase. He has promised that the light of the world will increase and fill the world. Will you pray with me? Oh, Lord Jesus, light of the world, will you shine into the world, breaking the darkness of the whole world, and will you shine into our hearts, breaking the darkness of our hearts. We trust that you and nobody else are the true light of the world. Teach us to follow you and to live according to your light. We ask this in your precious name and for your sake. Amen.